So ADU stands for Accessory Dwelling Unit. Historically, accessory dwelling units have gone by many names. Uh, some common ones are second units or casitas or granny flats or in-law units. But effectively, it is a secondary dwelling that exists on a single parcel. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now... Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Eric Preston. Eric is on the leadership team of Habitat and Trove, a turnkey provider of accessory dwelling units, also known as ADUs, based here in the Bay Area. In this episode, Eric will walk us through everything that we need to know about the process of installing an ADU on your property in California. So if you're wondering if building an ADU on your property or next investment project makes sense, then you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, welcome to the show. If you thought it was informative and engaging, consider subscribing to the podcast. We release episodes every Wednesday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Conventus Lending. Conventus is a hard money lending company based in the Bay Area and has funded over $2 billion over the past few years. We offer competitive rates and amazing service. And for being an Everything Real Estate Investing Show listener, you'll get a discount on your processing fee. So whether you're looking for a bridge loan for your next fix and flip project, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan on an investment property, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get the process started. All right, Eric, thank you so much for being on our show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure. Thanks for having me, Sean. My name is Eric Preston. I'm on the leadership team at Habitat ADU. We'll be rebranding soon to Trove, by the way. So in the interest of uh, evergreen content here, if you're looking for Habitat ADUs or Trove ADUs, either one is our company. I head up business development, as I mentioned. And what we do as a business is provide a service to homeowners or investors looking to build ADUs. We're a turnkey provider of HUD code manufactured home ADUs. And you guys are based here in the Bay Area, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, our office is actually in the Presidio in San Francisco, uh, although most of the projects that we do are spread around the entirety of the Bay Area. And then we have some projects in Southern California as well. Awesome. Do you guys ever plan on branching out to other parts of the nation or are you trying to stay in California? You know, it's an interesting question. I think for the foreseeable future, what we have line of sight into, we'll stay within California. And the reason for that is that there was a pervasive set of new legislation that just went active January 1st of this year, 2020 that made the creation, construction, and development of ADUs substantially more feasible for homeowners and investors within the state of California. So it's unlocked a huge market for ADU development, both in rural, suburban, and urban areas all throughout California. And that same legislative environment does not yet exist nationwide. So it's difficult to imagine habitat expanding nationwide in the short term, given all of the various regulatory and licensing requirements we'd have to hit operationally for a limited addressable market. But in places like Portland or Seattle, there's a lot of ADU-friendly legislation at the more you know, municipal or city level. Uh, places like Charlotte and Atlanta are starting to pass a lot of additional legislation as well. So we will probably just lag behind you know, by six months or a year, friendly legislation popping up in certain markets or states. Nice. Do you want to talk about what that legislation was and why it makes it easier for people in California to get more ADUs on their properties? Absolutely. I think when discussing ADUs, understanding the legislative and regulatory changes is critical to understanding why ADUs are a hot topic right now in 2020. Just for a little bit of background, I mean, it's always been possible, you know, anywhere in theory 
to build an ADU, particularly in California, but it's been incredibly difficult. Uh, local governments, counties, local municipalities, cities have all made building ADUs historically incredibly difficult uh, with a lot of hurdles to get through in order to get proper permitting for ADU construction. In addition, neighbors or HOAs obviously can be big barriers in a discretionary design-oriented review process as well. And it's been extremely problematic. You have very low penetration rates of ADU developments across single-family homes in California today, way less than 1%. Whereas in like Vancouver, in Canada, where you have extremely friendly ADU legislation, 30% plus of all single-family homes have an ADU on them. California as a whole has had effectively a statewide failure to build housing. Whether it's affordable housing or market rate housing, there are substantially more people moving to areas than there are houses for them to live in, which has caused massive housing shortages and price increases. And just generally, you know, is the underlying factor that leads to the current housing crisis and affordable housing crisis. In California, there are mandates that were issued over the last decade to local governments to put in place housing plans to build more housing to support the population and the growth that California expected. Generally, across the board, counties, cities, local municipalities all failed. So the state of California, uh, both the legislative body and Gavin Newsom had to step in and say, okay, we have a statewide failure to build enough housing for our populace. Uh, We're going to fix this. So the state has basically overridden in a number of different ways a lot of the barriers that local governments or HOAs or neighbors have put in place to make ADU development difficult. So now across the state, you're seeing that there's a conflict between local laws that are now being overridden by these less burdensome and less onerous state laws. Some of the things that are really important to highlight there. Maybe the first and most important is that statewide, what used to be a design-oriented discretionary review process is now ministerial, meaning that if you check the right boxes that the state requires, it's a maximum of a 60-day process to get rubber-stamped ministerial approval without all of that discretionary design-oriented approval. So just right away off the top, within 60 days, if you meet the basic requirements that are mandated statewide, you're getting an approval from both zoning and the building department to build your ADU. That's huge. And then what are those checkboxes that are now consistently mandated statewide? There are a lot less difficult requirements to meet than what was in place at the inconsistent state citywide levels previously. So things like size requirements. A lot of the ways that ADUs were limited in the past is that a local city would say, you can build an ADU, but only if it's under 200 square feet or only if it doesn't exceed the floor area coverage ratio of 6%, basically impossible hurdles to clear. The state has said now, as long as you're building a one bedroom, you can no matter what, guaranteed build up to 800 square feet for two bedrooms, guaranteed up to 1,000 square feet. They've done away with floor area coverage ratios. Parking requirements is another big uh, historical legislative hurdle. In most cases, as long as you're within a half mile public transit, the state of California has said that uh, not only can you not be required to build off street parking, But uh, if you destroy parking to build an ADU, you don't have to replace it. A number of other changes as well. HOAs have been extremely limited or restricted in their ability to interfere with the construction or usage of an ADU. Uh, We talked about size requirements, parking. And then for investors specifically, another one of the huge things that's really unlocked the space, at least for the next five years through 2025, is that owner-occupancy requirements for the usage and rental of an ADU have been waived. So within before 2025, if you have an investment property that you don't own or occupy, not only are you allowed to build an ADU, but by right under California state law, you can rent out the ADU as well. 
So before this, you couldn't do that. Like before that, you weren't able to rent out your ADU if you owned a rental property? It's likely that you were unable to, right? It depended on the city laws. So as an investor, you might have a great investment property and say, well, there's tons of space here. You know, I, I have a plenty big enough backyard to build an ADU, be it attached or detached, what have you. But if you build one, then you can't rent it because you're not an owner-occupant. And that local city said in order to rent out your ADU, you must owner-occupy the property. Now, not only do you like have a, effectively a state constitutional right to build an ADU without all these burdensome requirements, but you cannot be required to owner-occupy the primary residence in order to rent out the ADU. So you can double your rental income streams across both the primary residence and your detached ADU. Wow. One other legislative change I should mention, the state has also standardized and made consistent the setback requirements. So setbacks are the distance from your property lines that you're allowed to build. Historically, cities had really burdensome or impossible to meet setback requirements, and they were inconsistent, say, 40-foot setback requirements from all property lines, both the rear and the side. Most people's backyards are not big enough to accommodate, you know, 80 square feet coming in from all sides. It just means that they have no space to build an ADU. The state has now standardized and said four feet is the maximum setback requirement that can be imposed by a city from the rear and the side property lines. And usually it's 10 feet or six feet from the primary residence. That can still come down to kind of local fire code. Nice. Yeah, so it seems like the process is a lot easier and creating more opportunity for people who want a product like this. And before we get into you know, more details, maybe we should go into what an ADU actually is. Sure. Yeah. I think mistakenly promote and market ADU development a lot. And three-letter acronyms are the death of common understanding of the general populace who might not know what an ADU is and therefore can't get excited about it. So ADU stands for Accessory Dwelling Unit. Historically, accessory dwelling units have gone by many names. Uh, some common ones are second units or casitas or granny flats or in-law units. But effectively, it is a secondary dwelling that exists on a single parcel. And they take many forms. So you might have a detached ADU that you can sort of envision or picture like a pool house. It's a standalone secondary structure in a side yard or a backyard that is permitted for occupation and then can be rented and lived in normally. You also have an attached ADU that could be joined to the primary residence. You see things like garage conversions where you take a garage, whether it's attached or detached, and turn that into an ADU, secondary unit, basement conversions, things like that. The new legislation, by the way, also unlocked on a, on a residence, you have a right to one detached ADU on a single family home and also one junior ADU which is legally defined separately. So actually, you can build a triplex on every single single-family home in California now. A junior ADU is less than 500 square feet. It exists primarily within the original envelope of the home, and it has some slightly different requirements in terms of its usage. JADUs, just for all the listeners out there, are less compelling for investors because on JADUs or JADUs, owner occupancy can still be required in order to rent out the unit. So when you're thinking investment, I think the primary focus should always be on detached normal ADUs. And then what we're looking for in a second livable unit needs to have its own entrance and egress, food preparation or cooking space, living space, and then its own bedroom as well. Those are sort of the main requirements to be classified as an ADU. No bathroom requirement? Yeah, and a bathroom, sorry. Yeah. Although with junior ADUs, actually, the bathroom can be shared with the primary. Just another sort of quirk of, of junior ADUs. But yes, exactly. A bedroom, cooking... Entrance, bathroom. No parking requirements or anything like that, right? There can be, in one corner case, a parking requirement, but as long as you're within a half mile of public transit, all parking requirements are waived. And then if you're removing parking in order to build an ADU, that generally is not required to be replaced. Another thing, by the way, is 
on any multifamily property, actually the state allows you two detached ADUs. So if you own a duplex and you're looking to double your rental income streams, you can actually build two detached ADUs on the same property, which is very cool. Wow. That is very cool. And then within this, there's flexibility. Like you can sub-meter the water and power if you want, or you can run it all off one main meter. They can have a separate address or the same address. Fair amount of flexibility. Yeah. And uh, I actually had some questions from the city a couple of months ago, and they told me, you know, like the whole half a mile to public transportation, I mean, that includes bus stops. It doesn't have to be like a light rail or BART station. So it's actually very common to have, you know, a property within half a mile of some kind of bus stop or public transportation. Yeah, of the projects we've looked at at Habitat, like 99% have not had any parking requirements off street. So, Very nice. So can you tell us the whole process of getting ADU put on your property from start to finish? Sure. And depending on which type of ADU you're looking to build, this process could change. Probably starts for your average consumer with a bit of research into just understanding, you know, what is an ADU, maybe listening to podcasts like this, getting familiar with the local laws, and then the options. From there, and when I say options, there's a pretty you know wide breadth of different ADU options that you can explore, alternatives. So you might look at your property and think it's you know a better fit to convert a garage or to do a JDU within the existing envelope of the home. Or maybe you have a really accessible wide basement that could make a lot of sense or a large backyard uh, where you could do a detached ADU. Once you sort of have a sense for the buckets of options available to you, you would probably generally start by doing reaching out to a number of different companies like Habitat or perhaps an architect to do a site feasibility assessment. And during this pandemic, a lot of these are done remotely or virtually, but eventually you're going to get to an on-site physical visit by someone more experienced with ADUs, whether that's an ADU-specific provider, a company like us, an architect. or um, There's also like a lot of ADU consultants these days that specialize in managing a project for you. And they'll come out to the site and examine a number of things around feasibility, right? How much space do you have? Is there a tree that needs to be removed? Are there large power lines up front that could make delivery of a modular unit difficult? Measure the setbacks, look at the slope grading, these types of things just to determine feasibility. From there, you would typically go into a design session. And the design session is going to include both siting and a more detailed scoping of your feasibility based on these design elements that were mentioned or delivery elements that were mentioned. And then you're going to sort of design your ADU with an architect. If you're looking for a stick built ground up approach, you're going to have maximum flexibility to work with that architect to design exactly what you're looking for. With prefab players, there's a spectrum or a range of design options available to you. Some companies have literally like one box with set dimensions and set design features. And and you basically just pick that unit and that is your unit. Other prefab companies offer a bit more flexibility to change the dimensions of a unit, to move some walls around, to pick out your finishes, number of bedrooms, types of countertops, et cetera. And Habitat, by the way, falls into that much more flexible prefab bucket. After your design session and your physical on-site visit, depending on which type of ADU you're pursuing, your process could differ slightly, but at some point you're going to come together on signing a contract that says, yes, I'd like to proceed given that I have a more complete scoped budget here as a result of my design session and site visit, you're going to sign that contract, put down a deposit, and then you're going to go get permits. And we provide permitting services at Habitat. Other companies may not. You may have to manage that yourself or hire a project manager or ADU consultant to manage that process for you. 
at least with the zoning department on or the planning department on zoning, that process should not take more than 60 days. Uh, the building department can stretch things. The fire department can stretch things. But uh, hopefully within 60 to 90 days, you have all your permits. And then you start the construction process. With stick build, everything is going to happen in sequence. So you have to do your site prep, then your foundation, then your framing, then your insulation, then your exteriors and your roofing, all in sequence. With prefab, you can actually do the site work and the factory build concurrently, which is a great way to sort of control your timeline a bit more and shorten the overall time for project completion. But you're going to have to do a lot, right? You're going to have to maybe do some grading on the site, remove a tree, remove a shed to get the, the site ready, Then you're going to lay a foundation. For stick built, you're going to go through all the framing and insulation and exteriors that I mentioned. If you're doing a prefab method, you're going to be building your unit offsite in a factory using assembly line, you know, machine precision to get your unit built. Typically, then there's a delivery and installation process, often using a crane to take the unit and secure it to the foundation permanently. There will be inspections ongoing throughout that construction process, which can take anywhere from five to seven months with prefab up to 12 to 14 months with stick built design. And then you're going to get your certificate of occupancy and you're ready to go You know, use it for personal use at that point, whether it's a kid coming home from college or a grandparent who is maybe coming home from some other community or your aging place, or you can rent it out and start earning rental income once you have that certificate of occupancy from the city. And what is that time frame from when you get your permits ready to doing the whole construction foundation work and craning the ADU over the property and secure it to the foundation? For prefab, it's faster, right? Because you can do the site work and the foundation work concurrently with the factory work. So from the time the permits are done, probably the fastest time frame would be about three months. You could see that taking five or six months. And not every prefab company is the same, right? I'll probably avoid speaking about specific competitors by name, but there are some prefab companies that use like 3D printing to build modular units. And they may, might control their production of the unit in a factory that they own and manage themselves. So there could be a lot of delays there from the 3D printing process or just a, a smaller capacity factory that has a backlog. So their timelines might be more uncertain or take a bit longer. On Habitat's end, we're really fast because we work with a super high capacity factory partner that's one of the preeminent manufactured home builders in the United States. So we're churning factories, units off the factory line really quickly. There are other companies that do like panelized prefab. And that's sort of in the middle of a, a ground up stick build and a modular complete unit that's built in a factory offsite. This is where you're sort of building panels or walls offsite in a factory and then shipping them to the property and stitching them together. So it has some elements of stick built where there's a lot of on-site work, other elements of prefab where you're putting the pieces together off-site. For something like that, you know, you still are relying on a lot of subcontractors in their timelines. So because of the site work, it's going to take a bit longer out of the gate. And then you also have a fair possibility of some delays. So for something like that, it could be seven, eight, nine months. So for a prefab ADU, and it's like, you know, 1,200 square feet, are, are you like putting them on a truck and then just driving them on a highway to go to your house? Yeah, so for a 1,200-square-foot unit, which is, we do offer a three-bed, two-bath at 1,200 square feet, which is generally the max for a lot of jurisdictions that, that's allowable for a two- or three-bedroom. Yeah, the way that works in, in modular or manufactured off-site construction is you're building the entire unit as a box in a factory. And it, for something that large, it's going to actually come off in three different pieces. And then, yeah, they're basically attached to or put on a truck bed 
and then driven on a very carefully planned route. Actually, just got off a call with our delivery specialist. You know, they have to look for wide roads and avoid low-hanging wires or tree branches. I mean, they're literally putting it on a truck and driving it several hours to your residence, carefully navigating turns and tree branches, using things like trans lifts or cat cabs to like deftly navigate these 16 foot wide or less, you know, housing units. And then oftentimes, if there isn't access through a side yard or a backyard, attaching them to a crane, establishing a pick point and shutting down a road for a few hours, craning them up and over the property or any trees, and then setting them on or near a permanent foundation that's already been built at the site where a C-47 contractor attaches them to the permanent foundation. That's sort of the delivery process. And so for something like the 1,200-square-foot unit, you're going to do that three times with three different boxes. And generally, that'll all happen within the same several-hour period. But And then there's an on-site finishing process that can take a week or two to kind of stitch everything together. That's cool. I would love to go to one of your sites one day to see it in person and probably film it. Yeah, I think you'd be welcome to. The one thing we do have to be careful about is the pandemic. For the evergreen content out there, this may be hopefully a relic of the past. But right now, when we're doing deliveries, even most of the Habitat team is actually not welcome at the site, just to limit you know, and adhere to the local guidelines around construction. But someday in the future, for sure, it's a very cool process. And there's a lot of, you know, people get excited and there's a lot of people shooting videos of like, there's a whole house being picked up transported over a house and then dropped down. Uh, it's pretty neat. Yeah, I'm pretty sure because of the pandemic, people actually appreciate the fact that they don't have a lot of workers on the site at all times. And, you know, a majority of the process can actually be built in a factory away from their home. Yeah, and I think that's true. It's not normally cited by customers as, you know, a major value prop. I think some of the other things about prefab offsite factory construction stand out even more, like the reduced timeline, the increased control, and the reduction in things like delays or the reduction in things like cost overruns. Just, you know, the less subcontractors you have on site, the less chances there are for a scheduling conflict, less people baking margin into their services. Generally, the less people involved in a construction project, the more on time and on budget it will be. Those are the major benefits of prefab construction. But certainly we have had customers comment, you know, I don't want a ton of people back here on my property. And not just for the pandemic reasons, but when you sign up for a stick-built construction process end-to-end, it can easily take 18 months if you're including the permitting. That's a lot of 7 a.m. hammering going on in your backyard, especially if you're stuck working from home. So for with prefab, you know, you're going to have some site work. The foundation is going to take some time. But some of our installs take 48 hours, right? The actual process of getting the unit onto the foundation and tying it all together is very quick. All right, great. And when it comes down to creating the foundation and attaching all the utilities, like how complicated is that process? Because if I have a backyard and there's concrete in my backyard, does that mean I have to trench everything to attach it to the sewer lines? And how complicated is it to you know, attach it to my, my power lines? Every property is actually a little bit different. So maybe I'll compare and contrast an easy tier one install, which is going to be the simplest for us and the lowest cost to a really complicated like tier three or tier four install. So And this might be helpful for investors that are exploring properties as well to buy and then install an ADU, which is going to have great blended cap rates right now. What to look for. So the first thing I look at is, you know, what is going on with the city and how ADU friendly they are. It doesn't matter that much because the state has just come over the top and said, we're good to go no matter what. The city can't really intervene. But having an ADU friendly local jurisdiction can't hurt, right? It's just going to expedite the process and make any potential friction points less painful. Then I want to look for a 
a lot size or a backyard that's large enough, right? If you don't have the backyard size given the four-foot setback requirements, it's going to limit how much ADU you can build or where you can put it. So lots over five, 6,000 square feet tend to be able to support an ADU pretty easily, but you do want to get a look at the backyard and just ensure it's long enough and wide enough to easily support an ADU that's one, two, or three bedrooms to your choosing. The next thing to look at is going to be how flat is that backyard. Any sloping or grading can add cost to your project, and that's true for stick-built or for prefab. Then you need to clear out the area where the ADU is going to go. So existing structures, sheds, trees in the way, power lines in the backyard, all can be major barriers to ADU development, easements from utilities, things like that. So you want basically just wide open acreage, right? As flat and as few barriers in the backyard as possible. From a feasibility standpoint, particularly with modular or prefab, power lines in the front yard, huge problem. If you need to crane because there's not enough side or backyard access, having major power lines in the front is usually a blocker and prohibitive to the project. That's a huge thing to look out for if you're interested in doing prefab to lower your costs. So if we have this tier one site with none of that, flat, clear, wide open, tons of space, no power lines, maybe even with 14 feet, 12 feet of side access so we don't even need a crane, the process is going to be pretty affordable and pretty cheap. I mean, we'll just truck the unit back there, use a trans lift to get it off the truck, and then roll it onto the foundation. Foundations typically can cost anywhere, I mean, depending on where you are, 15 to 30 grand. The less grading required, the simpler it's going to be. We at Habitat use a stem wall foundation, but the type of foundation you use can affect your costs. And then you mentioned the utilities trenching. You know, we budget about 50 feet into our baseline pricing for trenching for things like water and electrical and sewer. But the truth is nobody can know until you've submitted the permits. And there's a few things that can happen that can increase the cost of utility connection. The first thing would just be further away from the primary residence. The more trenching you have to do, the more expensive it's going to be just from a distance standpoint. And then, you know, if PG&E comes over the top during the permitting process, that can add costs. Sometimes with sewer, they'll connect to the main lateral on the street. Instead of the primary, that can add costs, and you won't really know until you submit your permits, unfortunately. And then the type of electrical panel you have. We see some units where they already have an upgraded panel that can support multiple dwellings. Sometimes you need to add a new electrical panel to the house, and that's very site-specific, and that can add five or ten grand to a project. So I think that sort of answered the question of how that process for install would work and the utilities connections. And by the way, when you come to a company like ours, we give you like a line-by-line -line proposal up front in terms of estimating what those costs will be. And once we complete sort of the on-site visit, those numbers get a bit more dialed in and have more certainty. And then you should have complete certainty by the time your permitting process is done. On a Tier 4 property, if any of those items go wrong, power lines, grading, tree removal, extended trenching, an upgraded electrical panel, you're just going to be adding 5 or 10 grand per item. Mm-hmm. Just to clarify, you said that for the power lines, you're attaching the lines to the main uh, panel of the main house, or are you doing it directly to the power lines? The most typical thing that would happen is that we take a look at the existing panel on the primary residence, and it's large enough and in good enough shape to support two units, and we'll connect the ADU's power to the primary residence. You could choose to have that sub-metered, or it can run all off one meter. There are certain cases especially if you have overhead power lines, but a property is still feasible for delivery where you can connect to the street directly as well. But it's very case by case. Yeah. To do that, you probably need like a 200 amp panel, right? On your main house. I am unfortunately not the guy to ask that question to. Okay, cool. 
So how does pricing work when it comes down to finding out how much it costs to build an ADU on your property? This is a very nuanced question in the industry, and I'm going to answer it generally, and then I can go into specifics with Habitat and our ADUs. But everybody has a different pricing model. Everyone provides different levels of certainty up front. Everyone has different likelihoods of budget overruns. So I'll try to sort of compare and contrast, but it does take a fair amount of research from customers up front to really understand what they're signing up for and how to compare apples to apples. One thing I can say fairly definitively about Habitat, if you're building a detached ADU, we will not lose on price, bar none. But let's go through the options. So the first is stick built. This is ground up development in the backyard using an architect, a structural engineer, and a contractor. If you're doing ground up, stick built, you're going to have all the customization and flexibility in the world. That's the upside, but it's going to be very expensive. Not only is it going to be expensive, but you're not going to have much upfront clarity on what your cost will be. You're going to have to spend five to 15 grand on an architect and another chunk of change on a structural engineer before you even have some level of an estimate. Then you've got to take that to get permits, which is going to cost you another 10 to 20 grand. Then maybe you have a completed set of architected, engineered, and permitted plans that you can take to GCs to get bids. I've heard of a few people doing stick-built ADUs all in when you consider the permitting costs, all the different vendors on the upfront side, the, the architect and the structural engineer, a litany of contractors and subcontractors from foundation people to framers to insulation, roofers, window people, they're all going to charge you, but you're going to end up at least 500K all in. Typically, we'd see this more in the 600 or 700K range for just like a standard 800 square foot ADU. And the thing here that you have to be careful for when you're looking at stick build is people like to quote low, but they leave a lot of things out. Maybe the permits aren't included or the appliances aren't included or the finishes aren't included or the foundation wasn't mentioned. So you really have to go through and quadruple check that every single line item that is involved in your ADU process from upfront vendors through permitting and install and then the finishes is all included in that quote. And then the other thing is that it's just much more likely to have overruns, right? When you have that many vendors involved in the project, there are a lot of people involved who can quote low and then come in over the top during your construction project. Obviously, as a homeowner, there are things you can do by working with vendors you've worked with before that you know and trust and just doing extreme diligence up front on the cost to try to get more accurate quotes and more certainty up front. But yeah, that'll be easily over 400 or $500 per square foot to do ground-up development for a detached ADU. If you're doing like a garage conversion or a basement conversion, there are some cool opportunities there to get cost savings because you can you know, leverage the existing foundation or the existing walls and infrastructure of the unit, which is helpful, very helpful. And reducing costs. Then just as sort of as we go down the line from pure stick built, we get into like different prefab options that are modular or panelized. These are going to give you more certainty up front and should be reduced costs because you have machines and robots offsite and lower skilled labor capable of doing the work of building your unit. The big play and so all in for like one of our competitors that's modular, I'd say probably all in you're looking at 350 or 400k to build a detached ADU. And that's really split into two parts. You've got the unit itself which you should be able to get a really reliable, really consistent upfront quote on because it's built and controlled in a factory. Where we've seen customers get into trouble with modular or prefab players is on the site work and construction side. That is still generally managed by a GC. There are a lot of subcontractors, a lot of places for delays and cost overruns on that side of the house. 
And what you'll see with a lot of prefab players is that they don't manage or control that construction process directly. They're not the GC of record. They're handing that off to someone else or you, the customer, is just contracting separately. So there's still a huge project to manage that can have a lot of overruns. And the other thing with modular is that you're still building the state and local code, which will add a lot of cost to the process through more onerous building requirements. And just in general, the ecosystem of vendors in modular with state and local code is going to be more expensive. Then there's Habitat. And again, we're building HUD code manufactured home ADUs. And as I said before, we will not lose on price. And our process is, I think, a little bit unique from a pricing standpoint. Our goal is to lower costs as much as possible for the customer while also providing locked-in guaranteed pricing with as much certainty as possible up front. So our units coming off of the factory line because they're built to HUD code are just going to be 50K less expensive right off the bat, which is amazing cost savings for customers. We also are the GC of record, so we can truly guarantee our pricing on the construction and site work side of things, and we manage that process directly. In theory, you know, site work costs should all be the same, but because we are the GC of record, we can really guarantee that price up front. So when a customer signs a, a PSA or a contract with us, that's a guaranteed price, and if the price goes up, we'll either eat that cost out of our margin, or a customer can walk away and get a full refund on every dollar that they've spent. All in for our pricing because we're again getting cost savings by building offsite in a factory and we're building manufactured homes to HUD code. We have units as low as like 179,000 all in on the, on the lower end and then 250, 275K all in, including permits, finishes, appliances, foundation. 270K all in on the larger side for like a 1,000 or 1,200 square foot unit with the guarantee up front. Yeah, that's really good. I have some comments on my YouTube channel when someone's saying that they got a quote for a 800 square foot ADU for 320K. And that's obviously a lot more expensive than what you guys are offering. Yeah. And that number, honestly, is really good too, right? Compared to doing ground up stick built construction in the Bay Area where GCs are so expensive, you could easily spend five or 600K for the same thing with stick built. The, the problem we've seen with other prefab is that the quote sounds really low and good up front, but because people don't control the construction process, there's all these overruns, you know, one month or two months in once the site work begins and it was poorly budgeted and estimated up front. And then there's no accountability to the prefab player to deliver on those costs. So the customer gets hit with these massive budget overruns two months in. So what do you think is the most expensive part of this whole process? There's a lot of little 10 and 20K costs, right? Ultimately, any construction process can be broken down into its component parts. The singular, mo I mean, the foundation can be, you know, 20 or 30K, depending on how complex the grading is. But ultimately, if you're doing modular or manufactured offsite construction, the unit itself is going to be the single most important piece. And that's because you're buying the house as a whole, sort of in one giant block. You don't have to worry about all the different subcontractors across windows and framing and insulation and roofing. It's just one factory built assembly line unit. So that ticket will be the highest cost. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm thinking like, it's like the, the ADU itself probably doesn't cost, you know, 100K, right? It's the labor that's attached to it and all the people that have to work on it. That's what drives the cost up for these projects, right? I think the place customers get surprised is the site work, right? If you have a complex site with power lines or trees in the way, all of a sudden the 180k unit that you looked at your quote goes up another 100 or 200k immediately and it wasn't necessarily a cost that you were prepared for or budgeted for so doing that diligence up front is extremely helpful just to make sure that you've got good accurate pricing and a clear expectation of what all your costs will be up front 
the other thing is permits are not free, right? Like you can easily spend 10 or 20 K on permits. And if you have a complicated site where you've got a electrical easement through some neighborhood power lines going through your backyard, that can be a logistical challenge that's very expensive to overcome. How are people financing these projects? Great question. So what I always say around financing is that in this case, and typically legislative and real estate innovation has dramatically outpaced financing innovation, right? Banks are slow. They're conservative. They want to ensure they get paid back for the loans that they're making. So what we're seeing today is that Jan 1 of 2020, all these new laws passed. Immediately following, there was a ton of innovation from the real estate space to find new creative lower cost ways to build ADUs. Lenders are still lagging behind a little bit. So getting financing for a project can be difficult. The major buckets we've seen customers use today to fund their projects are first just savings or friends and family funds. Maybe like within that bucket, we can include things like borrowing against one's 401k or retirement account, which is a fairly simple way to get some liquid assets into your checking account that you can use to put towards a 200 or 250k ADU project. Obviously, not a lot of people have 250k sitting in a checking account. So that's a pretty limiting factor. By far, the next biggest bucket is loan products that borrow against a customer's current home's existing equity. That looks like usually a HELOC or a cash-out refi, depending on whether you want a first position or second position loan on your home. And the market conditions here are fluid, especially during a pandemic. But for the evergreen listeners out there, you'll want to just check in with your local bank or lender to see what the market conditions are. The big thing to be aware of here is how much equity is in your current home today. You're going to look at the current value based on what the home is appreciated to after you bought it and then subtract your current loan balance. And then market conditions will dictate what the maximum LTV or loan to value is. And those numbers should give you a simple arithmetic equation to calculate how much equity you have available to borrow against. But doing that type of thing, either a HELOC or a cash out refi, generally affords people a good chunk of change at a very low interest rate that's sort of government subsidized and backed. So for people that have the existing equity in their home, it's a very simple and straightforward, well-understood way to get low-cost financing. Those funds go into your checking account. You can use them at will. The next and most emerging bucket to watch is a bucket of financing types that will borrow against not your existing home, but your future homes as improved projected value. These are typically called construction loans or renovation loans, but there's a lot of innovation just starting to happen right now that is difficult to fit into a bucket, but ultimately is, is borrowing against the future home's value. So typically the way these loans work is that your home will be appraised on an as-improved basis. So the appraiser will look at the plans to build the ADU and then look at comps and say, okay, this home is worth a million dollars, but we're going to spend 200 k on an ADU. That's going to increase the value. It might increase it by 100K. It might increase it by 300K. It's a bit of a, a crapshoot today just based on the inconsistency of comps and also the inconsistencies in appraiser guidelines. But regardless, it should give you a higher value home and more collateral to borrow against. So it can increase your loan amount, even if you don't have the equity available in your existing home. Operationally, they are a little bit more complex. The lender is going to need to underwrite you, the borrower, your home, but then also the construction partner that you're working with to ensure a deliverable unit. Like I mentioned, you should get a higher loan amount. And then operationally, typically there's a draw schedule. Funds will be loaded into escrow up front, but then only dispersed after completion of certain milestones in your project on a construction draw schedule. This is the area I think to pay the most attention to if you're an investor or a homeowner looking to build an ADU. 
we're seeing a lot of cool financing partners that we have at Habitat come out with new products almost weekly. So feel free to reach out to me or to us and explore in more depth what current loan options are available in your area. After that bucket, we get out of the mortgage world, right? Things that aren't backed by real estate as collateral. So there are personal loans, just borrowing against your credit score and income effectively. Typically with a personal loan, you can get up to 100K. Interest rates are much higher, but it can be a tool to have in the toolkit. There's also things like home equity co-investment, companies out there that will effectively like buy options or shares in your home through equity rather than debt, which is amazing if you are house rich, but credit or income poor. That can unlock a lot of funds for an ADU project by effectively selling a piece of your property. No monthly payments, no interest rate, but that company who's an equity co-investor with you will see a large percentage of returns in the form of appreciation in your home once it sells. So that's out there. And then probably the last bucket is like personal property loans. That's like an auto loan or a solar loan. There are companies out there that will do typically smaller loans, probably under 100K for things collateralized by personal property. Maybe the ADU unit itself can be borrowed against or just other assets you own that aren't real estate. Yeah, that's really helpful because I know there's a lot of people who are new homeowners that want to put an ADU in their backyard, but you know, they don't have any cash and there's no equity to tap into to get you know a HELOC or a cash out refi. Yeah. I mean, it's probably one of the biggest challenges facing the ADU industry as a whole. How do we help these customers who want to help solve and tackle the housing crisis in California, maybe want more space for family or for income, have great credit, have great income, just don't have a ton of house to borrow against. It's a challenge, but definitely call us. Like There are always solutions we can look at to try to help you. Just might be a little bit more of a puzzle to unravel. Mm-hmm. And when you put a new ADU on your property, does that trigger any kind of a, like reassessment in terms of, you know, charging you more for taxes? So I think this is part of the new California state legislation, but uh, it definitely does not trigger Prop 13 in California. So you won't go through a new assessment. You will likely be subjected to what's called a blended assessment. So the value of your primary does not change, but they'll take that existing value and add to it whatever the value of the ADU is. It should not increase your property taxes by a substantial amount. Okay. So like if you add a $200,000 ADU to it and it says that your value is now worth $200,000 more, you'll be charged taxes on that $200,000, basically. Just on the marginal incremental amount. And honestly, Sean, how the county tax assessor figures out the value of the ADU as a standalone entity is a bit of an unknown right now. But regardless, it shouldn't substantially change one's property taxes in a massive way. And the main and most important thing is that your primary residence will not be reassessed. Right. Yeah. And who has been your typical client profile? Like, what do they look like? Honestly, 50-50 split right down the middle, and that's consistent with you know other industry players. The first bucket is people using it for family or personal use. So aging in place is one of the awesome benefits of ADUs. That would be a family that's getting older, and they move out of the primary into the ADU. It could also be you know a pandemic-oriented detached home office. Kids coming home from college, bringing the grandparents home from maybe a retirement community to live back at home with family. Those are all really common cases. The other 50% is investors. The reason investors are so fired up about this, and and I'm personally fired up about investing in this space, is that with ADUs, you're leveraging really expensive land in dense high-rent areas that you already own, right? So you bought a primary residence either recently or years ago. You obviously liked that investment reasonably well enough from a cap rate perspective or a cash-on-cash returns perspective. Just based on the rent that you accrue as an income stream from the primary, to buy this property. And with buying the property, you acquired the land. And the land has real value. I mean, it's expensive to acquire land. 
and it's just free sitting there in your backyard. So by building an ADU, and with us, you're going to build it for you know, a very low cost because you're getting geographic arbitrage and factory-built precision, which can take a lot of the high-skilled human labor out of the process. You're building a very low-cost unit, shipping it and installing it in a, an expensive, dense, high-rent land area, getting the exact same rental income for a fraction of the cost. So effectively buying a really high-yield rental income stream at a huge discount, Cap rates for that ADU project are going to be north of 10% cash on cash returns, depending on the type of financing. I mean, I've seen some with infinite cash on cash returns, but 16, 17%, not uncommon. Why would you say it's a good idea to put an ADU on your property? So for example, like here in the Bay Area, sure, makes sense all day. But what about the lower price markets like in Fresno or Bakersfield? Yeah, I mean, determining the return on one's investment is a function of, to me, three things. The first thing is, what does it do to your property value? And that is a bit nebulous today. We need time for more comps to come out, for more clear guidelines from appraisal institutes or Fannie and Freddie. We need appraisers to get more comfortable and familiar with the product to really understand how much and in which areas adding an ADU increases your property value. Because it's so high risk, I look at that as actually like a tertiary factor and generally recommend that people build ADUs if they plan to buy and hold for a longer period of time. And that hold period is, is what's so critical when thinking about a return. And we can think about it in two ways. The first is, are we renting that ADU and building a rental income stream? And you can just look at the returns that way over a 5, 10, 20-year period based on sort of the, the cost to construct and then the relative rental income minus your expenses. The other way to think about utility, though, or an ongoing return during a hold period is the utility you get personally. So if you're building an ADU and not renting it, it probably still allows you to get a lot of value. And it's difficult for me to put a number on that value for you, but you know there are families that are willing to spend almost anything to bring a grandparent closer to home or to ensure that a kid has a place to stay that is their own and separate, but still with the family. So those things are more difficult to value, but obviously the longer you plan to hold and use the ADU, the more valuable it's going to be. The other part of the like, is it worth it equation for me is what is the total cost? And generally, if you are living in a, say, less dense, less urban area, your, your cost will probably be lower to build as well. So you have to sort of consider both sides of that equation in, in determining if it's worth it for you and, and what you plan to use the ADU for. And I don't think there's a one size fits all answer there. Yeah. And, you know, like from doing my research, I've always dreamed of putting an ADU in my backyard as well. And my girlfriend's very interested in this kind of real estate as well. We've seen YouTube videos of people putting in these $15,000 sheds with like some compostable toilet or whatever. Why can't people just do that? Well, I mean, you can, but uh, it's not technically an ADU, right? First of all, if it's not big enough to hit the mandated state guidelines, you will not get a certificate of occupancy. Those are legally cannot be rented. You will not get them permitted as a livable unit. If a neighbor complains, you're going to be subject to massive fines and fees from the city. You will not be able to get a tenant in there. And if you do, you're exposing yourself to even more liability. So it depends on the use case. If you just want sort of a detached home office for personal use, maybe you could explore whether that makes sense. Because that can, those can be a lot smaller and sort of avoid some of the permitting issues and habitability issues that the state imposes. But if you want a true livable dwelling with a bathroom and a kitchen egress and living space you have to follow the permanent guidelines that the state and the city provides and those small sheds with minimal safety and livability standards just 
do not actually pass muster with the city. And I wouldn't recommend it personally. The liability is off the charts if, if something were to go wrong or a neighbor complains or a tenant complains. Perfect. And do you want to tell us a little bit more about your company and what you guys provide for services? Sure. I mean, I think we sort of wove that in. But uh, again, we're, we're Habitat. In the future, we'll be called Trove as we go through our rebrand. There are really two things to know about us that differentiate us from other ADU players in the space. The first is that we will not lose on price. I mean, because we're building to HUD code and we're building offsite in a factory, we should be dramatically less expensive by 50 or 100K when compared to any of our competitors, even modular competitors. The other thing to know about us is that we're turnkey, right? So if you're an experienced investor and, de and developer and you enjoy managing your own complex construction projects, this is probably less valuable for you. But for everyday homeowners that are looking to, to build an ADU, it's a complex project to manage. I mean, you've got permits, site work, foundation, install, finishes, the utility connections, all of those things to manage individually. And Habitat provides services to manage all of those for you in a turnkey fashion. So incredible convenience very low cost. And then I mentioned before, but we also do our best to inject a lot more clarity and certainty and control into the process. So we provide full accurate quotes up front and we guarantee our prices. And then you also, just as a result of the prefab factory process and the efficiencies in HUD building code, generally you're going to have more control of your timeline and less delays as well. Perfect. So Eric, is there anything else that you think that we need to know about ADUs? You know, we've talked a lot about return for homeowners, right? You get utility for family. It's a great investment if you plan to hold and bring in the yield from rental income over a longer period of time. We didn't talk a ton about the community benefits, and those are massive. That's why I personally got involved in the space. But there are all these knock-on effects from adding density and ADUs in urban environments. You're cutting down on commute times, reduced commute times are just generally better for families, but also help the environment. These are generally considered sustainable and affordable housing units that can provide housing for median income or lower individuals and tenants. They generally help enable families to spend more time together, which have knock-on effects for education and youth doing well in schools. So they're incredibly like environmentally and socially conscious investment. And I know I feel really good about myself every day for helping to contribute and solve California's housing crisis. And homeowners and investors should as well. Awesome. Well, Eric, how can people get in contact with you? Well, you're welcome to contact me directly. My phone number is 510-318-1005. My email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at habitatadu.com. But the simpler way is just to go to habitatadu.com. And again, that's habitatadu.com. You can learn more information about our products, our services, our process, our timelines. And you can also enter your home address, go through a questionnaire, sign up for a free virtual online assessment. Is that habitatadu? A website still going to be available after you rebrand to Trove? It will definitely redirect you there for sure. So if you go to habitatadu.com and we've rebranded, you will get redirected to our new website. Perfect. Well, Eric, thank you so much for teaching us everything that we need to know about ADUs. It's a pleasure having you on the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.